Dear Father, we ask that you would be with us just now. We know that you always are with us, but especially now as we think about you, as we seek to come closer to you, please open our minds to these stories. Help us to see things perhaps in a new way, a way that uh, speaks to a greater clarity of who you are. Amen. Well, even though this is Exodus part one, we have to go through quickly a lot of history of the end of Genesis because we're still way, way back in uh, the story of Abraham. And so what I want to do is just very quickly uh, go through the last bit of Genesis and make a few uh, big picture points. I mean, if we're really doing the Bible chronologically and we were going to dedicate the same amount of time, you know, based on the time period, we'd be spending much, much longer on Genesis and uh, much, much less time on the writings of Paul, for example. So we are going to focus in on certain areas more than others. But I want to just come back and say one other thing about Abraham, because Abraham is talked about so much throughout the rest of the Bible as a hero of faith. Just bring up a few of these verses. Abraham believed God, and because of his faith, God accepted him as righteous. And we'll, we'll talk more about this when we come to the New Testament, but there is one Greek word for believe, faith, trust. It's all one word. So faith, trust, believe, single Greek word. We come back, where did Paul get this? Well, in Genesis, Abraham put his trust in the Lord. And because of this, the Lord was pleased with him and accepted him. Remember, we talked about what is the problem? The problem was at the tree, what happened with Adam and Eve is there was broken love and trust. They didn't trust God anymore. They believed lies about God. Love and trust was broken. And so the reason here, it seems to me, that God or Abraham all the way through the Bible is just trumpeted as our hero, the father of all nations, is because God finally got one. He got someone who trusts him again. And so God is uh, kind of just doing backflips here. I've got someone who trusts me, Abraham. And in Galatians, thus Abraham believed in and adhered to and trusted and relied on God. Anytime you read the Amplified version of the Bible, it amplifies. So you get all the different ways that this could, uh, uh, this could be translated. But notice, believed, adhered to, trusted, relied on. All of this is involved in this word faith. Okay, so all of this was reckoned and placed to his account and credited as righteousness. And I just wanted to say a couple words about faith. What is faith? Well, this is kind of how it had been, uh, how I had understood it for a while. Let's just say that this little bit right here is the evidence that we have about God. This is what I believe about God. And this is the unknown. This is what I'm not sure of. I have maybe this little slice of the pie right here, and there's much, much more that I don't understand. Well, what, what I often hear emphasized when we talk about faith is that faith is this kind of this unknown piece of the pie. Well, there's a problem with that. Let's say we have an individual who has this little bit of knowledge. Yes, I believe this much about God. And this unknown part here, well, I take that by faith. It's a leap in the dark. I really don't know. Uh, this is all an unknown. But how would this work? Let's say this person gains more knowledge more trust, more evidence, more understanding about God. And this little tiny sliver becomes bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Finally, that person arrives in heaven. Now the circle is complete. 
Now, would you say that person has no faith? No, as the evidence and the understanding and the trusting relationship with God grows more and more and more and more, this evidence, this trusting relationship with God is the faith. So if you've heard phrases like this, faith is believing what you want to believe yet cannot prove. Uh, this is not faith at all. Or I can never remember if it's Mark Twain or a schoolboy that said this, but faith is believing what you know ain't so. Okay, no, faith is believing what we know is so, and that evidence, that knowledge, is what keeps us going forward, uh, just like Abraham. You know, God came and asked him to sacrifice his son, and I didn't read the New Testament passages on this, but in Hebrews it says, you know, he reasoned with God as they were going out there. He thought it through, and he knew God to be a trustworthy person. He didn't fully understand, but he thought, well, maybe God can resurrect my son. So he went on. Faith is a leap in the dark, not at all. Uh, I mean, just like if you come to a physician, let's say you, you have uh, abdominal pain, and uh, you walk in and you see the physician for abdominal pain, maybe the doctor just cuts you off after two sentences and says, stop right there, I know what's going on, we need to operate. No tests, no examination, no history, and you're rushed, I mean, how would you feel at that point? And maybe you're, you're complaining a little bit, and the doctor says, well, have faith. No, wouldn't you want, you need the evidence, right? You need to hear that doctor listen to you, do an examination, do CTs, MRIs, whatever it takes. All this evidence is compiled. You trust that doctor now, and then if that doctor told you, okay, here's the rationale, here is what's going on, we need to operate for this and this reason, now based on that evidence, you're willing to go forward. So in Hebrews, now faith means that we are confident of what we hope for, convinced of what we do not see. And I like the message translation of this. The fundamental fact of existence is that this trust in God, this faith, is the firm foundation under everything that makes life worth living. It's our handle on what we can't see. None of us have complete knowledge, complete understanding of things. But uh, as we learn, as we grow in this trusting relationship with God, that evidence continues to mount and the unknown becomes less and less. We continue to move forward. And that's kind of the experience of Abraham. Now, very quickly, I just want to summarize the history of the last part of Genesis. Now, you may not be aware. Of course, we know Abraham um, took um, Hagar and had Ishmael. But after Sarah died in his old age, he married another woman and had lots of other children. Yeah, kind of surprising. But notice what he did. Abraham left everything he owned to Isaac, but while he was still alive, he gave presents to the sons his other wives had borne him. Then he sent these sons to the land of the east, away from his son Isaac. Do you think that was a good idea? Have more children, send them far, far away, don't interfere uh, with my son Isaac. Well, there are lots of kind of surprising things in the rest of Genesis. Of course, Isaac married Rebekah. But Isaac preferred Esau because he enjoyed eating the animals Esau killed, but Rebekah preferred Jacob. Um, is this a healthy home environment where the father here has preferences for one and the mother has preferences for another? And of course, how would you like your name to mean the heel grabber or to deceive? Jacob. Well, did Jacob do a lot of deceptive things? Uh, he absolutely did. We'll go through some of those. Esau married two Hittite women, 
Okay, that disappointed Isaac and Rebekah. And I like the little added comment in Genesis, they made life miserable for Isaac and Rebekah. The Bible very much paints a picture of this uh, uh, kind of a contentious, difficult relationship that uh, the descendants of Abraham had. And of course, we know that Isaac, uh, you know, was somehow tricked by Jacob. By how hairy must Esau have been if you have to put sheepskin on to uh, con- be confused with your brother? Deceive Jacob. And then just notice his prayer. You know, we emphasize the story, the ladder coming down after Jacob is in discouragement. He sleeps out on a rock. And so Jacob, listen to his prayer after all this uh, evidence that God had just given him. Then Jacob made a vow to the Lord. If you will be with me and protect me on the journey I am making and give me food and clothing, and if I return safely to my father's home, then you will be my God. Is that a prayer of great faith? You know, God, if you're with me in medical school, you protect me, you give me food, you give me clothing. If I pass all my tests, if I graduate, get into the right residency, then you will be my God. Okay, that's, that's kind of a sad prayer, I think. But anyway, God is still working with these people. And then, of course, he went off to Laban. And uh, surprise, he, after the honeymoon, the next morning, he discovered it was Leah. Don't know how you could not find out until the morning, but that's the way it happened, apparently. And then, of course, he went to Laban and complained and was given Rachel. So Jacob had intercourse with Rachel also, and he loved her more than Leah. Again, is this a good home atmosphere? Two wives, one is the favorite, one is not the favorite. Uh, No, this is a very, very destructive environment. And Jacob, as he did many times, deceived Laban by not letting him know that he was leaving. And he ran off with all of his uh, cattle and his wives. And then this part is a little bit disturbing. Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in a camel's saddlebag and was sitting on them. Laban searched through the whole tent but did not find them. Rachel said to her father, Do not be angry with me, sir, but I am not able to stand up in your presence. I'm having my monthly period. Laban searched but did not find his household gods. What's bothersome about this? Well, what is Rachel, wife of Jacob, doing stealing the household gods? Remember that Laban and Rebekah were sisters and uh, they're coming from Abraham's brother, Nahor. And so wouldn't you think this family uh, would have a closer connection to God? Rachel's wife is stealing the household gods. Uh, That's troublesome. And then it gets worse. Jacob goes off with his children and we have this horrible story about uh, one of his daughters, Dinah, uh, who uh, a man liked her, raped her, and then decided he wanted to marry her. And so a couple of uh, Jacob's sons come to the men of the village and they say, we cannot let our sister marry a man who is not circumcised. That would be a disgrace for us. We can agree only on the condition that you become like us by circumcising all your males. Okay, so they went back to the town and they decided, okay, we'll all become circumcised. What happened? Three days later, when the men were still sore from their circumcision, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, the brothers of Dinah, took their swords, went into the city without arousing suspicion and killed all the men. I mean, is this kind of shocking here? We talk about the 12 descendants of Jacob, the tribes of Israel, and... uh, 
how comfortable would you be having people like Simeon and Levi in your class or as a church elder or things like that? I mean, it's, it's kind of shocking. More bad news. While Jacob was living in that land, Reuben had sexual intercourse with Bilhah, one of his father's concubines. Jacob heard about it and was furious. So his son sleeps with one of his concubines. And it continues on. Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children. Is this a healthy home environment? Because Joseph had been born to him in his old age, so one day Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, a beautiful robe. And of course we know Joseph... uh, I always kind of wondered how he told the story here to his brothers about, you know, I had this dream and you're all bowing down to me. You know, wouldn't that create some further contention in the family? And we know what happened. Joseph was thrown in a pit and sold off to Egypt by his uh, loving brothers. So all of this, uh, you know, incredible uh, information here in the rest of the book of Genesis. And if this is, maybe you have a whole afternoon, you decide, well, I'm going to read the last half of Genesis. Uh, What kind of spiritual blessing uh, are you receiving as you go through these stories? Well, I think there is one. Let's let's dig dig a little further. Well, Judah, Judah, I mean, Jesus, lion of the tribe of Judah. Judah marries a Canaanite woman. And then Judah saw a woman. And when he saw her, he thought she was a prostitute because she had her face covered. He went over to her at the side of the road and said, all right, How much do you charge? He did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And about three months later, someone told Judah, your daughter-in-law Tamar has been acting like a whore and now she's pregnant. And Judah ordered, take her out and burn her to death, not realizing that he was the father. Take her out and burn her to death. I mean, these are horrible stories that uh, you won't find in most of the kids' books that go through uh, Genesis. (laughs) And then even we have the wonderful story of Joseph. Again, God found one person here he can work with, kind of like Abraham. And Joseph is reunited with his brothers and he sends them back to get Jacob. And listen to the parting words of Joseph as they go back to get his father. He sent his brothers off and as they left, he said to them, don't quarrel on the way. Do you think these brothers occasionally quarreled along the way? Yeah, I think that's why he had to add that little comment there. So the question is, um, where is God in the last half of the book of Genesis. And all of these stories, you know, we read them and uh, we kind of, I think, subconsciously reflect negatively back on God. Where is God? Well, in a few places, here and there. Of course, I mentioned as Jacob was fleeing that God comes, there's this ladder from heaven. And this description here, uh, he dreamed and he saw a stairway reaching from earth to heaven with angels going up and coming down on it. And there was the Lord standing beside him. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham and Isaac, he said. I will give to you and your descendants this land on which you are lying. I think it's kind of remarkable in this context, all of this deception. And Jacob is fleeing because of this lie that there is God, still with him, giving him encouragement. And later on, after he flees from Laban, you'll remember that uh, an angel came and struggled with Jacob, and in the description, you have struggled with God and with men, and you have won. And then Jacob concludes it all by saying, I have seen God face to face, and I am still alive. I think what's remarkable here is that the one that came and wrestled with Jacob was God. And just just kind of think about this. I have 
heard and, and at least was told that uh, you know God is so pure, so holy that he can't really see you as you are because if he did, he'd have to do something to you. You have to be covered by something. And I think we really can't take that position if we just read through the Bible. Okay, here we have God, you know, one of his uh, you know, children here who's doing lots of bad things. What does he do? He comes, he comes, and he spends the night wrestling in the dirt with Jacob. So I think almost the most remarkable thing about this is the people are behaving very, very badly. And God, what is he doing? Uh, no lightning bolts and people dropping dead all over the place. But um, instead, we have God patiently working, working, working with these people. Now, this gets very remarkable, I think. Um, we read about here the, the ancestry. And we kind of yawn through this. You know, Maybe let's skip the first chapter of Matthew. All this boring list of things, the list of descendants from Abraham to David. And then we have the list, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. Okay, well, we're remembering a little bit about these people now. Uh, then Perez and Zerah, their mother was Tamar. Tamar, the, the woman that Jacob slept with and then wanted to burn to death, is right in the line of Jesus Christ. Um, you know, isn't, uh, couldn't God have chosen maybe better ancestors uh, to, to come from? Well, we read on the list here, and Boaz, his mother, was Rahab. What was Rahab's occupation? Prostitute, right there in the line of Jesus. Uh, Obed, his mother, was Ruth. Ruth was uh, Moabitess. Um, wow, now that's kind of remarkable. And then uh, we read, read on a little bit further from David, and they're all summarized. David, Solomon... His mother was the woman who had been Uriah's wife. Who's that woman? Bathsheba. Don't you almost get the sense that Matthew, as he's writing this, just can't even bear to write the name down? It's such a horrible story of David committing adultery with this woman and then having her husband killed. So he has to write, his mother was the woman um, who had been Uriah's wife. Uh, I think this should be very encouraging to us, though, because despite the despicable behavior, here we have God working with these people, and eventually God in human form comes in the ancestry of these uh, very badly behaving people. And this is kind of shocking, too. We come to Revelation. We read about the 144,000 who have God's seal. We'll spend a long time talking about what that seal means. They were from the 12 tribes of Israel, and we read this through, but then now as we're thinking about the 12 tribes of Israel, Judah, Reuben, oof, Simeon and Levi who killed all those men. But I think this is wonderfully good news because out of a mess, God eventually uh, is able to work something beautiful and wonderful out of, uh, out of this group of people. So I think it says very good things about God, even though it might be rather uh, depressing reading through the last half of Genesis. Why aren't there more wonderful, poetic uh, descriptions of God in Genesis? I love this verse in Hosea. The people of Israel are as stubborn as mules. How can I feed them like lambs in a meadow? Okay, but when people are as stubborn as mules, God will speak the language that a stubborn mule can understand. And I think that's why often uh, we have Jesus or God not coming, you know, saying, uh, you know, blessed are the meek, but we have some tough words because of people who are stubborn mules. So that's kind of the end of the book of Genesis. 
And then, of course, the people were enslaved. And we could go into a lot of uh, details here, but what I want to talk about is Moses at the burning bush. This is a very interesting uh, description here. You remember Moses was in Egypt for 40 years, and then he went off into the desert for 40 years. And while he was shepherding the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, the angel of God appeared to him in flames of fire, blazing out of the middle of a bush. He looked, the bush was blazing away, but it didn't burn up. Moses said, what's going on here? I can't believe this, amazing. Why doesn't the bush burn up? I think you can always kind of tell the message Bible when it's you know, worded this way. But anyway, this is accurate. But the question is, who's the angel of God? Who was that at the bush? Was it an angel? Was it God? Well, we just have to read on here. God saw that he had stopped to look. And this is very frequent where it starts out with, well, it's the angel of God. And then as we read on, oh, it's God. God saw that he'd stopped to look. God called to him from out of the bush. Moses, Moses, he said, yes, I'm right here. God said, don't come any closer. Remove your sandals from your feet. You're standing on holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face, afraid to look at God. All right, so this was God himself that came. Now, remember, every time we come to fire, we will kind of want to tuck that information away. Um, if after this bright presence, whatever it is of the bush, had gone away, let's say you'd run up to the bush and you'd touch some of the leaves. Uh, was the bush just uh, singed down to nothing? No, it didn't burn up. Okay, this is God's presence, but we don't have a description here of the bush just poofing uh, into flames. Okay, we'll, we'll kind of add to this picture as we go on. But the question I want to ask you is, uh, which member of the Trinity would this be at the bush? Would you say this was Father, Son, Holy Ghost? Or does it matter? Do we have any evidence maybe about who it might be in the rest of the Bible? Yeah, here, a couple saying Father and a couple people saying Jesus. Um, well, we have, fortunately, as the description goes on, we have a title that's used. But Moses replied, when I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors sent me to you, they will ask me, what is his name? So what can I tell them? God said, I am who I am. You must tell them, the one who is called I am has sent me to you. Tell the Israelites that I, the Lord, the God of their ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have sent you to them. This is my name forever. This is what all future generations are to call me. Very significant. I am. I am who I am. And you might remember that Jesus later on had an incredible uh, confrontation with the Pharisees in John chapter 8. And he said to them, and you will die in your sins if you do not believe that I am who I am. When you lift up the Son of Man, you will know that I am who I am. I'm telling you the truth, Jesus replied. Before Abraham was born, I am. And I think for any uh, Jew who knew their Bible as they did so well, uh, I think they understood what Jesus was saying and it outraged them because they did not want a God who was like Jesus. And so when they heard this claim of Jesus saying, you know what, I am actually God himself, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself 
and left the temple. So I think it's rather shocking, but in our mind, as we read through these Old Testament stories, the God of the Old Testament is Jesus himself. And the reason we're going to spend this whole year just going through the Old Testament is we're trying to reconcile. We love the picture of God that Jesus revealed. Um, Now we're trying to reconcile some of these Old Testament stories. But the God of the Old Testament is Jesus. And as further support for that, Paul is discussing the children of Israel as they're wandering through the wilderness. And then he concludes they drank from the spiritual rock that went with them. Who went with them? And that rock was Christ himself. Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. Of course, we don't call him Jesus until he is uh, born in human form. Okay, but the Son, remember we read in Philippians, who is equal with God, is none other than the God who is described all the way through the Bible. So what I find so incredible about this is the incredible uh, condescension of God. This description in Jeremiah 23, I am a God who is everywhere and not in one place only. No one can hide where I cannot see them. Do you know that I am everywhere in heaven and on earth? Okay, this is what we think of God, powerful, everywhere. But then we have this description where he's described as the angel of the Lord. We didn't go through these stories, but Hagar wanders off into the desert and she sees the angel of the Lord and then she says, I have seen God. Same thing with Jacob, Moses at the burning bush, Gideon. Uh, We'll read this story later, but Gideon, it's an angel of the Lord initially, and then the description is God is having this conversation with Gideon. So this angel of the Lord is God, specifically God the Son. But then it's just almost like God is taking this great cascade down in order to reach you and I. Of course, I mean, he enters the womb of one of his children. He spends his first night in a feeding trough, and then he's known as man of Nazareth. And you remember... Nazareth. Can any good thing come from Nazareth? How, how low does God have to go? And eventually, death. Greatest love is to give your life for them. So we have God himself who goes lower, 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 and eventually in the tomb. Okay, that's incredible. So, but it was God at the burning bush. And just to point here, why would God choose Moses and look at the power, the authority that God gave Moses, then you will be like God, telling him what to say in terms of how he would relate to Pharaoh. The Lord said, I am going to make you like God to the king, and your brother Aaron will speak to him as your prophet. I mean, what a representative, Moses. You'll be like God to these people. Why Moses? Well, there's a prophetic uh, description here in Deuteronomy we talked about in the first Bible study where the prophecy is, he will send you a prophet like me from among your own people. So the coming Messiah would be a Jew like Moses. And so we have to think, is if he would be like Moses, in what way would he be like Moses? And uh, can you think of any description in the Bible about a character quality of Moses? Moses ever described, he was kind of, he was like this. Yeah, humble. Moses was a humble man, more humble than anyone else on earth. Who wrote the book of Numbers? Moses? Um, Who knows? Maybe it was added later or something, but you know, Moses here writing, uh, wow, the humblest guy in the whole world. Isn't that incredible? 
which, by the way, reminds me, I think I first heard this in Ken Hart's class. If you're looking for a good uh, class to go to on Saturday mornings, what time does your class meet? Which one? Oh, I don't know. I didn't know you had more than one now. But. Uh, I have a regular Sabbath school class that uh, meets at 10, and uh, right now we're talking about the story of the Bible that starts at uh, 11, uh, 11.20. Okay, and that's in... Uh, Randall's Visitor Center. Randall's Visitor Center. Okay, so that I would highly recommend that if some of you want to get into this a little more. But anyway, Moses, humblest guy. And what was Jesus like? We could go through all these descriptions of Jesus in Isaiah, humble servant like Moses in character. All right, now let's talk a little bit about the interaction between Moses and Pharaoh. Moses and Aaron went to the king of Egypt and said, the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go so that they can hold a festival in the desert to honor me. Who is the Lord, the king demanded. Why should I listen to him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Kind of sounded like a Dr. Seuss book there for a minute, but anyway. What is, uh, why would Pharaoh respect, I mean, okay, so the Lord, the God of Israel. Would we expect Pharaoh to tremble, the God of Israel? Oh my goodness. Uh, What would Pharaoh's impression of the God of Israel be? Well, how did you rate gods in those days? Power, right? The god of a bunch of slaves is telling you, let my people go. I mean, it's, it's kind of laughable, right? The god who can do no more than have a bunch of slaves is telling me to let them go? I mean, he'd have absolutely no reason to respect uh, this request, right? God, This god must be weak, certainly, if he can do no more than uh, have a bunch of slaves. So that's why he responds, uh, I think, with with such uh, disdain. What do you mean by making the people neglect their work? Get those slaves back to work. You people have become more numerous than the Egyptians, and now you want to stop working? All right, so absolutely not. So the foreman realized that they were in trouble when they were told that they had to make the same number of bricks every day as they had before, because Pharaoh now, he's angry, so he's making them do more. And as they were leaving, they met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them. They said to Moses and Aaron, the Lord has seen what you have done and will punish you for making the king and his officers hate us. You have given them an excuse to kill us. And I I read this before, but these things are just such wonderful nuggets here. Then Moses turned to the Lord again and said, Lord, why do you mistreat your people? Why did you send me here? Ever since I went to the king to speak for you, he's treated them cruelly and you've done nothing to help them. Wow. Moses, remember God's friend, spoke face to face with God as a man speaks with a friend uh, under this incredible distress, uh, felt comfortable saying to God, his friend, um, you've done nothing to help them. And the, the next verse, you know, Exodus 5:24, is not God saying, uh, don't talk to me like that, Moses. No, I mean, I think this is, uh, this is a friendship that Moses and God have. So God's reply was this. Then the Lord said to Moses, now you will see what I will, do to, uh, what I will do to Pharaoh. I will show him my power and he will let my people go. I will show him my power and he will throw them out of his country. Now, I think we are often very much uh, attracted to the power and we often attribute that as the greatest attribute of God. He's powerful, he's powerful, he's powerful. But... When God has to stoop to use his power, uh, this is really a very dim light revelation. God does not want to come in there and throw his weight around to get his people out. Um, God came in human form 
and uh, didn't exercise power to kill people that disagreed with him. So anytime God has to do this, and what, else, what other choice does he have? I mean, the king is looking at a God who is a God of a bunch of slaves. How in the world is God going to convince Pharaoh to let these people go? So he has to exercise some power. And then, of course, we have the long list of plagues. And this is a little bit troubling, I think, because, you know, these are horrible things that happen to these people, one after another. And remember how Pharaoh hardened his heart with each successive plague, or he'd given a little bit, and then when the plague was lifted, then he'd change his mind again. And so uh, it can kind of paint God to be uh, somewhat of a vengeful, uh, destroying monster if looked at in a certain way keeps just hammering the people further and further with more and more plagues. But when you look at it, and I won't go through all of these, but each single one of these plagues were specifically directed at a god during that time. They had a god for all of these things. Uh, god of the frogs, gnats, flies. Uh, you go through each and every one of these. And what God was doing was systematically going through every single one of the gods of Egypt, not real, not real, I'm stronger, not real, I'm stronger, not real, I'm stronger. Every single one, uh, evidence, 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 evidence. I mean, at least the people should admit, all right, well, the God of Israel, I guess he is powerful, isn't he? I guess maybe, uh, you know, I, I love the description here that if you're worshiping the God of the frogs and uh, now... You've had millions and millions of them crawling all over the country and then they're dead and you're having to sweep them all up. And do you think frogs, uh, lots of them would stink a little bit uh, after all that? And then uh, maybe you'd think twice about praying to the God of the frogs um, that night. Okay, so what God is doing is really providing evidence that these gods are all false. There's only one true God. And then a very telling verse on the Passover. On that night, I will go through the land punishing all the gods of Egypt. Of course, they're not real. But with each one of these plagues, he is punishing, destroying each and every one of these gods. And of course, we know there was a mixed multitude of people that came out of Egypt uh, with the children of Israel. Okay, this was the only language that uh, Pharaoh and those people would understand. And he didn't even seem to understand that very well. But what I want to ask a little bit here is, what does this mean? Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Let's read the whole description here in uh, Exodus 9. And when Pharaoh saw that the rain, the hail, and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet more, and he hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. He and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hard. Okay, we have it described two ways there. He hardened his heart, and just as a statement of fact, his heart was hard. Neither would he let the children of Israel go as the Lord had spoken by Moses. Now the Lord said to Moses, go in to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants. So it's kind of interesting here. The, the Bible writer, Moses, uh, is describing, well, it gives us uh, several options. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Well, his heart just became hard. Or God hardened his heart. So you take your pick. I mean, which, uh, which would be the, the closest to the reality of what actually happened to the heart, the mind of Pharaoh? And I think here we come to a very, very, um, for me, 
fundamental point that will be so important as we go through the whole rest of the Old Testament, and that is this. Um, God is very, very frequently described as doing something that he allows to happen. And I'm just going to give you a few examples, but we'll point this out so many times through the Old Testament, that God is described as doing what he allows to occur. What do you think about this description? We're skipping all the way forward now to 2 Samuel, just to make a point. The Lord was angry at Israel again, again, and he made David think it would be a good idea to count the people in Israel and Judah. That's a little bit troubling. Does God tempt to evil? Of course, James tells us absolutely not. God does not tempt us into evil. But the description here, you can read it in any translation, he made David think it would be a good idea to count the people in Israel and Judah. And uh, what's shocking about this is you read another description of the exact same event written later in 1 Chronicles. Satan wanted to bring trouble on the people of Israel, so he made David decide to take a census. Um, God did it. Satan did it. Um, this is... Um, we're we're going to need to spend some time talking about inspiration. Okay, I believe the Bible is fully inspired, but we need to talk about what that means. But here we would seem to have two complete uh, opposite descriptions here. God made Satan do the census. Satan decided to, uh, was allowed to tempt Satan or to tempt David and he uh, gave the census. Well, which is closer to the reality? Let's give a few more examples. Listen to how David would des describe the demise of Saul. By the living Lord, David continued, I know that the Lord himself will kill Saul, either when his time comes to die a natural death or when he dies in battle. Okay, how's God going to kill Saul? Here are the options as David saw it. Either when his time comes to die a natural death or when he dies in battle. It's kind of interesting. And uh, then, of course, we know the description. You remember Saul was killed in battle and he fell on his sword. He committed suicide. And you read on, so the Lord killed him. Hey, did God lay a hand on Saul? Not at all. God is described as doing what he allowed to happen. Now, why, why is it this way? And, of course, God has all power, right? Couldn't God have helped Saul? Um, couldn't he have uh, gone in and manipulated the battle, gotten Saul out of there? Of course he has all power. But God here is uh, not using his power to override someone's free will. Saul had separated himself further and further and further and so God allows this to happen. God allows Saul to go his own way, allows him to commit suicide, but yet he's described as doing it. So many more examples. In, in the Ten Commandments, I mean, you would think there's not going to be anything the slightest bit misleading in the Ten Commandments. But listen to this. I bring punishment, this is God talking, on those who hate me and on their descendants down to the third and fourth generation. Now, maybe you've had something bad happen to you this week. And uh, maybe it's not anything you did, but it was a sin of your great-grandfather. And God is punishing you for something that your great-grandfather did. Well, this is, this is certainly what the words would imply, right? I bring punishment down to the third and fourth generation for the sins of the fathers. Uh, well, we read on all the way down to Ezekiel, and we know, says very plainly, God does not punish the children for the sins of the parents. But yet we know in, in medicine, this is exactly how it works. I mean, if uh, 
If we have a, a father who is a drunk and comes home and beats his children every single evening, are there negative consequences down the generations because of that kind of behavior? Absolutely. This is describing a, a very true relationship that the sins of the fathers, the rebellious activity of the fathers, has horrible consequences down to the third and fourth uh, generation. All right? So it's a... God is describing here something that is a very, very real process. God allows this to happen. He certainly has the power to override free will, to prevent any negative consequences. He doesn't do that. And so he is described as doing it. And Jesus quotes Isaiah here in John 12. This way, God has blinded their eyes and closed their minds so that their eyes would not see and their minds would not understand. And they would not turn to me, says God, for me to heal them. And just think about this. Jesus is coming. He's trying to reveal God. He's trying to reveal what God is like. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's trying to penetrate with these wonderful truths. And then he quotes this verse. God has blinded their eyes and closed their minds so their eyes would not see and their minds would not understand. So Jesus would have been very successful if only the Father wouldn't have blinded everyone's minds and ears. Um, no, this is describing the same kind of thing. These people are, were so hardened, they couldn't hear the message. They hardened their heart. God allowed their hearts to become hard. And so um, the description here again makes it sound like God did it. God allowed it to happen. So many examples of this, but it's a, it's a very important concept, I believe. Now, here's the last... Oh, no, there's actually uh, two more examples I wanted to give. The description of Job... Um, this is just coming up in, in a month or so. We'll talk about Job. But you remember God had this conflict, con uh, conversation with Satan, and he said, all right, Satan, you can have Job. And, of course, we read about the horrible things that happened to Job, and very clearly you read the beginning of the book, and God allowed Satan to have access to Job, to do horrible things. Well, everything, fire came down from heaven, and notice... This is the description. The fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. The servant flees, and his conclusion is it's the fire of God that fell from the sky and burned up all those things. But if we just read you know, a few verses earlier on in Job, we know this was Satan who was allowed to do this. Okay, So we have to be very careful, and again, gets into kind of our understanding of uh, inspiration, of the Bible. Yes, the Bible is inspired, but because a person interprets this as, well, God sent that fire. No, we just read three verses earlier, and God said to Satan, okay, you can do it. I pulled up uh, an insurance policy online here, and uh, uh, this is probably in most of them. And this is, this is the words, what is not covered? Acts of God, including, but not limited to flood, hurricane, and earthquake, or consequential losses resulting from any other act of God. Okay, And it seems to me we have a great deal of rethinking to do about God's actions in human history. These acts of God. Uh, are these really acts of God? That's kind of a, an offensive term, I think, because how do we see God being involved in some of these disasters? And as we'll point out in many examples, the captivity and so on, that God allowed this to happen rather than being the initiator uh, of these uh, activities. Now, last example. In Numbers, we have the description here of the people rebelling, 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 rebelling. And then finally, then the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and many Israelites were bitten 
and died. And we don't have any parallel passage here, another description of this event. We just have the description, the Lord sent the poisonous snakes. Okay, what do we do with this? Do we assume that uh, this is what happened? God sent those snakes to bite the people. Many were bitten and died. Well, using, I think, all of this other accumulated, accumulated evidence throughout the Bible, when people rebel, they separate further and further and further what they're doing is they're separating themselves from the love, the protection of God, and there are natural consequences to that. Remember the description of these people? Their shoes didn't wear out. I mean, they were provided with manna. Uh, everything that, uh, that they would need in this journey was provided for. And this is a horrible point here in Numbers. It's, it's a point of complete chaos. And I think based on what we just described, we can read a verse like this and say, you know what? Uh, they separated themselves from God. And those snakes, don't you think there were snakes all throughout uh, the desert there? They were then uh, allowed to bite the people. Now, I don't know, I've taken a poll here, how many of you are actually Seventh-day Adventists, but um, I would just include one quote, if I can, from the most influential Seventh-day Adventist, and this was how uh, this was interpreted. If with all these tokens of his love, the people still continued to complain, the Lord would withdraw his protection until they should be led to appreciate his merciful care and return to him with repentance and humiliation. Because they had been shielded by divine power, they had not realized the countless dangers by which they were continually surrounded. The poisonous serpents that infested the wilderness were called fiery serpents on account of the terrible effects produced by their sting. It caused violent inflammation and speedy death as the protecting hand of God was removed from Israel. Great numbers of people were attacked by these venomous creatures. Uh, do you like the description there? Yes, Ken. That's actually from Deuteronomy 8.15. So if you look at Deuteronomy 8.15, you'll find that same description. He just stole it from the Bible. All right, excellent. But do you, do you like that understanding that uh, as we separate further and further, that there are these consequences, but they're not directly at the hand of God? This appeals to me very much, and I think uh, uh, adds to it an improvement of our picture of God. All right, let's pray. Dear Father, please, as we continually seek to know you better, give each one of us a clearer picture of you that we feel comfortable, as Moses did, as Abraham did, in talking with you openly, honestly. Help us to see how you have acted in human history. Help us to understand your actions, that this trust in you that Moses and Abraham had, that it will be even stronger in us, if possible. Amen.